HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cooking Issues is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, an employee-owned company that has been offering organic stone ground products for decades. Their flours and whole grains are the highest quality and are minimally processed at their stone mill in Oregon. Visit bobsredmill.com to shop their huge range of products. Use Cooking Issues 25 for 25% off your order. Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from, you know, I don't know, sometime after 12 till like about 1. Especially, Nastasia has to leave on the button today because, uh, joined as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez, how you doing? Good. She's uh, flying off to uh, her native land, to L.A. today. For 24 hours. Sounds fun. Yeah. Visiting pasta after pasta place in, in L.A. Yeah, nice. We got, uh, we got... Cat today, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? You gonna? Well, we'll give you your pitch in a second. We're, we got to do this. Is our NPR version of a pitch for money? We got Matt in the booth. Hello, hello. And in a minute, we're gonna have. I hope we had him. He called before, but I guess he doesn't know how late we normally run. Uh, Dave David Zilber, for who uh, is the co-author of the Noma Guide to Fermentation, and we're gonna talk fermentation in a minute. Uh, but while we're waiting, Cat, why don't you give your pitch? So this Monday, December third. At 6 p.m. is our annual fundraising galler. Fundraising galler. galler. Ding, 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 ding. I've been in Alabama for a week. Don't judge me. Uh, <laughs> fundraising gala. Winter in the Garden. It is at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, the Palm House, the really pretty glass house. Um, we're going to have a great lineup of chefs. Dave's going to be making cocktails as well as Southern whoa, tea. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to be making... I'm kidding. I know I'm going to be making cocktails. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? Um... Da- Damon Bolte, Southern Teague are also going to be slinging cocktails. We're super excited. Tickets are still available. Go to heritageradionetwork.org How slash tickets? gala. Tickets are 135 general admission, 225 VIP. VIP gets you in an hour early. You get an hour more cocktails. You get VIP bites that only VIP people are going to get. Can I just say, I, like, I want people to spend money on the VIP thing, but I always find VIP things incredibly depressing. It's because you're jaded. Remember that? Were you there for the Justin Timberlake VIP thing that we did when he launched his tequila brand, or is that before you started working with me? No, I was there. Remember? But we, he wasn't there. He was. Really? But he wasn't in the VIP section because he didn't want to hang out because the VIPs at like an event like that aren't the real VIPs. The, re- the real VIPs are on their own platform in the club mm-hmm. looking down at the rest of the, of the, of the plebes. You know what I mean? They don't want to be in a separate back room with like the with like the tier C and D VIPs. Mm-hmm. They want to be untouched by the, the the throngs and yet see the throngs. 
right? Speaking of tier A VIPs, Dave. Yeah. I've got a friend on the phone. Oh, nice. Got uh, David, you there? Hello. Hey, how you doing? Wait, where are you now? Are you in Copenhagen right now? I am in Copenhagen. I'm in the greenhouse, which is my little, my little, uh, (laughs) my vegetable getaway. Oh, nice. I thanked him. Nice. Yeah. Do you know I've I have not been in Copenhagen for more than an hour and a half in my life. That's unfortunate because there's more than an hour and a half worth of stuff to see here. I'm sure I saw mainly the train station. Like I went from the airplane <laughs> to the train station. Now this comes to another part of my life where I only go on trips uh, basically for business. And Absolute Vodka was like, you know what you need to do? You don't need to go to Copenhagen. No one needs that. You need to go to Skåne. So you know, uh, yeah, took, you you need to come to the south of Sweden and see nothing. <laughs> hey, except an absolute vodka factory. Wheat. No, my girl, my girlfriend's from Skåne. Yeah. Is so so I've I've been I've been to that town. Yeah, well, and uh, I mean it's quaint. I mean Skåne is the kind of place people not, are not from, right? Place. Yeah, exactly. It's not the kind of place people have moved to. It's the kind of place. It's not like California where people go to <laughs> California. It's like where people are yeah. from. Now. You're actually yeah. from you're you're from Toronto, right? I am Torontonian, yeah. Toronto is a place people go to, not necessarily a place people yes. are, are from. So is it ju- in your in the in the your intro or somewhere I read. Oh no, it was in uh, some in, uh, interview with you. You literally to go to Noma, you sent out a bunch of resumes to like the three places you wanted to go and your first bite was in yeah. Noma and that's how you ended up in Copenhagen, huh? Yeah, that is. That is. Uh, Grant Ackett wasn't so interested in me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find that no one's interested in... That's the thing. No one's interested in you until you know something. It's one of the kind of, like, crappy parts about life. You know what I mean? It's kind of depressing. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. True enough. So but, uh, you, you, no, I'm, I'm glad no one, no one scooped me up. So you just came out, by the way, because people are going to want to call in, I'm sure. You just uh, recently came out uh, with uh, the Noma Guide to Fermentation. Now, I know, you know yeah. Ari- Ariel's good friend of the show, Ariel Johnson. She, they did a, uh, you know, another gu- guide to fermentation years ago. But this one is it's very different. It's much more kind of, I mean this in, in a good way, mass market, kind of you know, bigger, shot differently on kind of a, a different scale. But did you overlap with Ariel at all or no? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She taught me lots of what I know. Yeah, Ariel is uh, a smart lady. I love Ariel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So do I. Yeah. Um, I it, it's funny because I think of her as like big sis, even though I am older than her. <laughs> but um, no, she she taught me so much when I first got into the lab and really, really kind of helped me get my feet on the ground in there. Nice. Um, her and Lars. And so we worked together for maybe about a year before she moved on. Um, and same with Lars Williams. No, but uh, it was it, it was amazing to work with them and to see what they did, and then, and then to be handed the reins and kind of build a new lab and get to write the book. And so, yeah, it was, it was a, a big torch to be passed. Nice. So I, uh, by the way, call in your uh, fermentation or your Noma, whatever. You got your Nordic-related questions, maybe I guess your Toronto-related questions, your fermentation-related questions, your writing a book-related questions, too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. But, uh, Matt, I'm assuming we don't have anyone on the phone yet, right? No. Okay. So I'm going to say some things first uh, because I did, as I say, read the book in its entirety. Um, What I like about the book, and this has to be a conscious choice uh, that, that you made, is the kind of, you know, you can do it 
to channel Rob Schneider, but the you can do it kind of attitude you have in the, in the in the book, it's you know very uh, you know it's very much with this tone that you know you can get her done. You know what I mean? Yeah, but that that was exactly the point. I mean, it wasn't uh, you know when we, were, when we first set out to write this book, and, and Renee was like, okay, this is this is what we're striving for. Uh, it, it, you, you can't just write an esoteric you know, tome of cuisine. We couldn't include recipes with centrifuges and rotovaps and, and ultrasonic homogenizers. We just wouldn't. I mean, it's pretty to look at, and it's, but it's not about impressing people. It's, it's about empowering people. So uh, I really, a lot of the work was just dumbing down what we did at NOMA, and, and not in a negative sense, but being like, okay, if you had nothing and you, you still wanted to make this butter emulsion, what would you have to do? And then you just MacGyver it until... You, you know, it, it, it makes sense. Um, and, and the best part about this is that Martha Holmberg, who's a, a really ma- amazing cookbook author herself, was a recipe tester for all this. So I actually flew out to Portland uh, quite early on in the book's process to actually, like, once, as soon as the, the recipes were drafted, to just do this with her and then basically go through the entire process of what Noma did, you know, very early on as we were figuring this stuff out and going to the local hardware store and the local cook shop to actually, like, build all these incubators and stuff in her apartment. So nice. well, just, just to prove it could be done. And that's it's, one of my favorite things. You're like, here's a speed rack, here's the plastic thing, and you like, you know, build all this stuff, yeah. which is, I think, you know, I think that's the kind of thing people, even though, look, you can get all that stuff on the, here's what you can't get off the internet, people. Like, what you can't get, I mean, you can, I guess, but the nice thing about a book is a book when you're writing for the internet, yes, it's a good place to put up a, a DIY, how to build a, you know, a, a fermenting chamber, et cetera, et cetera. But mm. um, there's something about writing a book and trying to turn something into a coherent, large format document that just forces the writer into a mental space and a kind of, if they do a good job, a level of rigor that you don't get writing on the internet. You know what I mean? So I think it's a useful yeah. thing. And I think books, it's one of the reasons I think books still have a place. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. It, it really forces you to, you know, to let go through a fine-tooth comb. Yeah. And uh, yeah, blog posts, like you said, they're one thing. You know, it's, and that's the thing is they're self-published. There's no, I, I, I don't mean to say it, but there's like, there's no stakes. You can put something up. If it doesn't work, oh, well, it gets buried in the history of your archives or whatever. But with a book, you know, there, there is a pressure, especially, you know, coming from us. It had to be, it, it had to do what it needed to do extremely well. Um, and, and uh, you, yeah, you just put yourself into that mindset and then from the ground up kind of, uh, you know, empathize with someone who's like got a team of three cooks in a bistro and oh, I really want to do this, but how? And, and you just have to put yourself into their shoes and, and make it make sense to them. You know, it, you take it for granted that we have this like huge space and these amazing incubators and and you know thousand dollar humidity systems and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's about doing it for for the little guy, I guess. And so, for people who haven't seen the book, it's kind of organized by style of ferment. So it goes like you know lacto ferments, yeah. kombucha. Uh, vinegar, koji, miso, you know, koji in general, miso, shoyu, garam, which, and black fruits and vegetables, and, um, which is, you know, like black garlic, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, until people call, I have some questions actually, actually on the, uh, Hey Dave, yeah? I believe we have a caller on who has a black garlic question. Uh, uh well, all right. Well, so right I'm going to call her, you're on the air, but while we're doing yeah. this, I'm going to see in case this question overlaps, 
uh, we'll, we'll put them to you all, all at once. One, you, in the book, you do mainly kind of, I know it's weird to say traditional because none of it's traditional. It's all a relatively new process. Mm. But kind of lower <laughs> temperature, much longer um, uh, processes for, you know, your, your blackened, uh, you know, alliums and your blackened fruit. Uh, and I was wondering whether you've tested and rejected or just haven't played with uh, like a lot of the shorter term ones that like Johnny Hunter's doing and Madison where he's doing – was first doing higher temperature and then beyond that pressure cooking uh, black uh, stuff. And I know that all the flavors are, are, are different, but I'm wondering whether you're testing it. And while you're thinking about that, caller, you had a question about black blackened products. What was it? Oh, yeah. Hey, this is – this is uh, Quinn from BC. Hey, how you doing? Another for, uh, a uh, fellow, your fellow Canadian. Nice from Vancouver Island. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So my setup right now is a um, old rice cooker. So again, it is actually running a little hotter than you guys recommend. But I had a different sort of question. Um, how concerned? if the heating got interrupted because that has happened to me before and I just reacted just in case but I was wondering like if it if it goes completely off for like a day if it's cold would it be reset to just restart could you hear that question David or no it was a bit choppy but I think I think how how concerned should I be if the rice cooker shuts off for a day? You got it. And then you restart it. Yeah. Um, I, that's not a good thing. Uh, okay. And it was actually Ariel who impresses, impresses upon me. But, you know, with, you're, you're sitting in the prime range for, for pathogenic bacteria growth. So if something cools down to, like, you know, 45 degrees and it's sitting at that temperature for, like, eight hours, it, that's that's not there's there's no way to to ensure it's safe um you know that's why you ferment or, or you, you you age garlic at 60 degrees because that's it's hot enough to keep the bacteria from propagating um and again garlic is something that grows underground anyway if there are botulism spores they could they could very easily start to to kick off so yeah um yeah i i, I elaborate on that in the book and i say you know it's your task with making sure that it doesn't drop. So, I, I would just so start fresh for the. It, right it, now, it's my ne- it's never worth your. Is pretty stable at like seven Celsius. And again, I've already thrown out the old band, but I'm just making sure that you know if that happens again, I know what to do. You know, back when I used to work at the French Culinary Institute, constantly like people who were cleaning would come. This was in early, early days, back when people weren't used to things cooking for 24, 48, 72, you know, mm-hmm. week, whatever. Constantly, people would unplug my crap. Like, I would come in the next morning <laughs> and be like, I can't live in the damn kitchen, people. You know what I mean? Like, don't unplug my stuff. Yeah. And like, so it got to the point where I would duct tape over all of the sockets. You know what I mean? Because... And still, yeah. occasionally, some moron would be like, "I wonder what this tape is here for. Let me take the tape off and unplug this thing." <laughs> I hated it. I hated it so much. Like interrupted processes. This is why early. Now, no one does it anymore. It's not even a problem anymore. 
But early in the day, I used to tell Philip Preston, I'd be like, Philip, man, can't you put... Because the worst would be like, I, I, I didn't trust anything I did anymore because I, no one had the data logger yet. There wasn't a data logging function in your kind of your standard thing. And so... Like, yeah. I was always nervous that, that some a-hole unplugged my stuff for, like, six hours to plug in a vacuum machine or some crap, you know, or, or a vacuum cleaner, mm-hmm. and then just plugged it back in and didn't say anything. I didn't say nothing. I didn't do nothing. You know what I mean? So, like, I used to be worried about this constantly, but I don't think it's a problem anymore because I think everyone knows now not to unplug the cooking equipment overnight. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hate. Yeah. Can I we, one more quick question? About sure. fermentation. Sure, Queen. Go, do it. Go for it. Sure. Um, so, I've gotten some mixed responses about harvesting my own koji spores. I was wondering if David has any other ed tips for making sure that that is sterile or there's no contamination from other fungus. Or if, you know, what's okay, the books? So, good. So, not just harvesting your own spores, like from the wild. No, no, no. From a, by from just a propagating Yeah. Um, if, if it tastes right, like if you, if you grow the spores and you grow your next batch of koji and it tastes like koji, you're probably on track. Uh, one of the really cool things that Japanese koji growers used to do or, or managed to do is that they would, they would select for, for color variants. And this, you know, the, the idea that koji is white is something that people had to, to do. Um, so it was domesticated, and they're like, okay, we'll breed it white, so if anything else pops up, we'll be able to see it. We'll have a very strong visual cue, and we'll know that something got infected, and we can either toss out the batch or start again. So if you ever see uh, different colors pop up, black, green, especially red or orange molds, you know it's been infected, but if your if your spores stay pure and white and keep growing really really fluffy, it doesn't look like well, any uh, other sort well, of mycelium growing. You're good. Go to green when it spores, correct? Wait, what? Say it again. You're kind of uh, doesn't koji shift from white to green when it is producing spores? The uh, question was, uh, doesn't it shift there, from white to yeah. green during the growth? There are some species that do that. So there are some species that when they go to spore, they go green. Um, but if you are concerned about that, find find a strain that grows white, and you'll have that added layer of protection, or that added cue. Okay. And, you know, for those of you that don't, I mean, for, for, for the few people, I guess, who are listening to this who don't know about, uh, thanks, Quinn, but for those of you who don't know the, you know, the basics of koji, you're inoculating... Uh, a substrate with uh, uh, an Aspergillus species, uh, you know, fungus, and that is growing, producing a, l- a lot of uh, enzymes that then do many other awesome things. Care to elaborate, David? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's how everyone in East Asia came across basically the process of mulching. So, so liberating the starches and grains and being... Uh, so you... you once you do that, you liberate sugars that can then be fermented by yeast into alcohol. So in, in the pursuit of getting drunk, we have koji in the world. Yeah. Now, um, and it has a flavor of its own. It's delicious. It's fruity. And its enzymes work not just on grains and starches, but also on proteins. So you can break down meats and misos and 
all sorts of tasty things. It's a broad band breaker down of things, which, by the way, funguses are in general, which is why they are so awesome, but also such a pain in the, in the behind if you, for instance, own a house or want anything to not get chewed up and eaten alive. I mean, fungus, they've developed a fungus that can break down anything. That's why a lot of your enzymes that you buy, commercial enzymes, are grown from some form of fungus that has been found in a laboratory to produce a very high, uh, you know, quantity of a particular enzyme. All the enzymes I use are fungally produced. Um, Let me see, is that true? No. Uh, Activa, meat glue, is bacterially produced, I think. Anyway, um, anyway, fungus, good at breaking things down. That's what they do. You know, they're one of the very, you know, you, anyway, whatever. Uh, so on aspergillus, I'm very curious because something I've never tried using before and I didn't really know that much about is this, uh, this other aspergillus species that you use, uh, wait, how do you pronounce it? Luchuensis that makes a citric acid? Luchuensis. How awesome is it? Is it Which is named after the island in the south of Japan where it comes from. Do you love it? I love it. It's my favorite thing on earth. It's my favorite <laughs> favorite thing to grow. It's my favorite. It's my favorite. If you, if you if you ever if you ever get your hands on it and you taste it, it's like Fruit Loops on speed. I like. I've never tried methamphetamines. I'm told that if I had methamphetamines, <laughs> it would be really really bad. I'm I'm told that me on really speed would be horrible idea. Don't do that. Yeah, it would be a terrible terrible thing. But uh, I do, you know I do like Fruit Loops. So, you know, win. Yeah. Also, I like anything that produces citric acid. You know what I mean? Like anything that can mm-hmm. produce citric acid. Like how much have – you, have you ever figured out kind of uh, uh, like equivalent percentages that you can get if you're doing um, – if you're doing like how acidic can you get? Well, the, then you have to deal with actually extracting it. I mean the, the grains, once they're fermented, are packed with citric acid. You pop it in your mouth, it tastes like a Sour Patch Kid. But if you want to, let's say, transfer that into a stock, you're all you're you're obviously going to be buffered a little bit. You're only going to be able to get out so much of that. But when, once you do, it is still super delicious. Uh, I totally want it. I, I read, that's the that's the thing I read on. I read that I was like, I want that. I want to try that. I want to try. So I want to try <laughs> a koji that makes citric acid. That sounds like something I want. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah. on, on that other thing, uh, I. You know, the, the garum, I love garum. So a couple questions when people try your recipe so that, you know, we can give them kind of a mental note. Your squid garum, yeah. how, I'm sure you've had the, the, the squid, uh, the ashiri from uh, Ishikawa, right? Or no, have you, have you ever tried that one, the commercially produced? I have not. It is freaking awesome. I love it. It's, mm. my, it's one of my two favorite commercially produced, uh, favorite, uh, commercially produced fish sauces. So I can't ask you how dead a ringer yours is for that because... You, have, you haven't had it. it. Um, no. You know, okay, so fair. Uh, so that was one of my questions. The other one was the grasshopper garum. Now, I understand theoretically that people want to eat uh, bugs, protein, yada, yada, yada. I ain't never had a grasshopper where I was like, you know what? That was better made with a grasshopper than with anything else. I have to say, like, if that had been made with anything other than a grasshopper, it would have been not as good. And what you're telling me in the book, now here's the thing, and you know, I liked, you know, the the ant distillates and all that. They're they're good. But what I'm asking you, God's truth, is the grasshopper garum just surprisingly good considering it's made with relatively flavorless grasshoppers? Or is it 
an incredibly delicious product on its own right that deserves to exist aside from the fact that you happen to be making it from grasshoppers. In other words, would you ever choose it over a different substrate? Yes, yes. It is, it is one of the most popular ferments at Noma, and it has been for a very, very long time. But is, how much it of that is, is it because is it's grasshoppers, and how much of that is because you would, in a blind taste test, be like, that's the one I want? I'm just asking. I'm just being a devil's advocate here. The satisfaction of eating, like, shellfish without the fishy flavor, that's what grasshopper garam is, except it's roasty and it's more meaty and it tastes, it tastes almost like mole. Honestly, it really does. Yeah, well, maybe someday I'll get to try it. Oh, by the way, people, uh, gar- you guys use garum rather than the more kind of current fish sauce. Is that kind of just an homage to tipping your hat to bringing it back to Europe, to doing something uh, on the European side? Or like a, a like a, a desire to not try to appropriate like like wholesale like a, a south you know a, a, you know a, a Southeast Asian kind of uh, condiment or what? Yeah, it, it's it's tough to say. And a lot of the a lot of the reading that I have found about garum and fish sauce, it, it, it like the dates kind of don't match up. And there there are there are people there are historians food historians that postulate that. Um, it only showed up in Southeast Asia in the way it's made today after communication between the Roman Empire and uh, and China was established on the Silk Road. Yeah, I kind of doubt so, that, though, don't you? I mean, there, there are links to... I mean, don't you kind of doubt that a little bit? I like, Almost all of these kind of... They're very uh, tenuous food histories. You know what I mean? And it's mm-hmm. like super... It's, you know, especially for someone who wants to... As, in other words, for instance, like you look at rice culture, right? And so it's you know it, it's now obvious, decades you know hundreds of years later, that rice was domesticated in parallel in two separate, at least at least two separate, very different kind of places, two separate domestication events, at least, right? In Africa, mm-hmm. in Asia, and so you know, there are some things that, you know, have one place where they come from, like chickens, you know what I mean? Uh, but don't you think it's much more likely that since everyone has salt and everyone's got extra weird fish lying around that it kind of just kind of <laughs> happened, you know? Like, it's, Do you really think someone in, in, in... Yeah, I mean, do you really think someone in Asia needed some, like, you know... Like uh, uh, a Roman to yeah to, to instruct the one how to do this, because because no, think, no, think about it, think about it this way. Not only gangs. well, I mean, not only do you need a Roman, right? But if I handed you an amphora of garum, right, and say, "Yo, here's this sauce. We put it on everything." You know what I mean? And you'd be like, "Because they did. <laughs> they put it on everything. It was like you know everything. It was like more, they put that on more things than we put on ketchup in the U.S. Right? But it's like." Every yeah. damn recipe had garum in it. You know why? Delicious people. But the point is, is that if I handed you a <laughs> bottle of that, you would have no idea how to make it, right? Doesn't taste like its constituent parts. I mean, it's like vaguely kind of fish. But you wouldn't be like, you know what? I bet you the way to do this is to just take a bunch of fish and salt and throw it in a pit. You know what I mean? You know, like you wouldn't think about it. <laughs> so, so like the idea that somehow no. mastery of fish sauce comes via, it just doesn't make any sense to me. That's all. You know? And now for our Bob's Red Mill moment, we're going to talk about 
amaranth, an amaranth flower. So amaranth is a pseudo grain that is uh, native to, uh, I guess, South America. Uh, it's a tiny little thing, and in fact, uh, you can pop it really well. Uh, if you have the whole grain, you can uh, and it's dried, you can pop it and then mix it. In fact, they make a whole series of candies. Anastasia, you remember what the name of that candy is? The one that they make in Mexico with the honey and the amaranth? No. You know what I'm talking about, though? Yes. Yeah, anyway, I forget the name of it. Um, but Bob's Red Mill sells an amaranth flower. The cool thing about amaranth is it has it has a really nice uh, taste. I haven't figured out exactly what to use with 100% amaranth flower yet, but I have substituted, as much as I hate telling people, to substitute it into things like muffins and pancakes, small amounts, up to about 25% of amaranth flour in those recipes are nice and good and add a kind of a bit of a, a nuttiness to it. Uh, amaranth, you know, it's if you believe in health, it's people believe it's a, a healthy thing. I, of course, don't believe in health. I care only about taste, but I still enjoy using amaranth flour. Uh, Bob's Red Mill carries whole grain stone ground amaranth flour. Go to bobsredmill.com and use the code COOKINGISSUES25. That's one word, all caps, COOKINGISSUES25 for 25% off your order. Hey, we want to do another uh, another caller question? Yeah, sure. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. Dave and Dave. Uh, I have a question for you. I have been uh, trying to track down the recipe or some kind of clue about how to make Portuguese fermented hot sauce. I know it's made with these with the small piri piri chili. I know it's got some garlic in there, and I know it has uh, some kind of spirit. Other than that, uh, no clue. Wondering if either of you have seen anything or been putting me in the right direction. Portuguese fermented hot sauce. No, nothing, nothing on my radar. And I just had uh, a Portuguese intern with me for three months, and uh, no, but he—I mean, I, I haven't—I haven't heard much about that. Maybe you could call them up, put it out, tweet. This You're not the, really on Twitter, are you? I am not on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on a, Instagram. Yeah, yeah, but not, not. Well, email it to us or whatever. If you get if you get an answer, if you ever speak, did you like the Portuguese intern? I loved him. He okay. was fantastic. So you so will you will speak to him again someday. Maybe you can yeah. get back to us and to let us know something, and then I can I can forward it. Yeah. Well, I will do that. Right. Uh, speaking of questions we had off of the internet, uh, Wes Hendrickson wrote in. Um, would you talk about this? Is for you, David. Would you talk about koji yeah. aging meat? They omit it in the book, but the DIY Koji crowd is nuts about it. Discuss. We don't really omit it. You talk more about marinades, not about aging it for long periods yeah. of time, right? Yeah, that's because putting meat in an incubator freaks me out. Yeah? <laughs> I'm sorry, but just putting a, a hunk of meat at 32 degrees for 48 hours just, just makes... Uh, it, yeah, not to, it makes me a bit uncomfortable, so I didn't want to tell people to do that. What about some sort of middle-of-the-road thing, doing kind of refrigeration uh, dry aging with already made kind of... In other words, doing the marinade just for a long, 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 any long, long time. How about that? Yes, yes, that that works. And that's that's what we say to do in the book. I mean, it's like, make a, make a cure, make shiokoji, blend koji with water and salt, turn it into a paste, and then rub your meat down in that and leave it on for as long as you want. Well, how long have you gone? Now, I, 
No, well, at, at the restaurant, we marinate our ducks for maybe about five, four to six hours. And it really actually does help to tenderize uh, the, the skin and the flesh. Rev, you're not doing like uh, like a week or a month. No, but you have you could. It would make the meat extremely tender. But yeah. uh, I think after a point, you're you're not. You know, it's like a lot of diminishing returns. I don't particularly like over. That's why, like, I you know, I know that in your buttermilk fried chicken recipe with I forget what you added to it with the enzymatic thing. Like, I like buttermilk batter, but I actually don't, I mean, I like it, but it's not my choice to marinate for super long periods in acid just because I think the flesh of the chicken breaks down too much. Is it, is it accelerated even more? Or are you using a harder chicken? Because American chickens are so, so freaking tender anyway that if you really, if you do too much more kind of breakdown on an American piece of chicken, I mean, suckers pulp. You know what I mean? Now, if you were going to do it yeah. like on like uh, you know, you know, an older chicken like a hen, or maybe like you know the kind of chickens that you know I had when I was in Colombia, or that you get in Asia sometimes, you know, older, tougher chicken, like maybe. But I, mean, I don't know what you get in Copenhagen. There, are you getting like American style, like hyper tender things, or are you getting tougher pieces of chicken? I mean, you can. You you can absolutely get like factory farmed rock hens and 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 all of that. Um, but we haven't really served fried chicken at Noma. That was that was a recipe that Renee came up with. You know, just as like a oh, this, this could be a good use, and we tested it. It was good. Yeah. yeah. Um. Now, um, back to black fruit again. I well, sorry. Go ahead. Yes. No, no. So just uh, just getting back to the the koji on meat. A lot of this uh, is centered around like rubbing your meat down. In oh. rice flour, and then Nastasia just made a face when you said that. And when you just said rubbing your meat down, Nastasia gave me such a look. <laughs> that phrase got uttered once before, and I was looking through the window. Nobody oh, really? was looking at me. Oh, <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go ahead. So the koji is growing on the rice flour. It's not actually growing on the meat. Some of those enzymes do kind of go through the other side of the layer of rice cake. And, and leach in, but it's not going to be anywhere near the same level of enzymatic production or release that you'd experience if it was growing on a completely starchy substrate. So uh, we've tested this in the lab. You know, it's, when we see when we see people doing interesting things, we want to be able to understand it ourselves if it's worthwhile. And it's not. It, it's it's to me just making a paste and rubbing your koji or rubbing the koji over the meat is a more effective, safer, and more controllable way of actually, you know, getting some usefulness out of its enzymes. Mm -hmm. So here's some, some more random questions. Back to the uh, blackened uh, alliums and yeah. fruits. Do, have you ever tried the higher temperature or, or the pressure cook methods? You just don't like them, or it's just you're sticking with traditional, or just curious? Yeah, so I, I, I follow Simon Davies on Instagram, and he was recently posting about pyrolysis which is the, 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 the thermal breakdown of, of whatever, plant matter at high heat in a short amount of time in the absence of oxygen. Um, yeah. Garlic at those temperatures, I find you'll end up getting those burnt flavors out of them, those, those kind of charred, acrid notes. 
And for me, that's why that 60 degrees for a really long amount of time is, is quite special. I mean, it's what it is. Um, I've never tested it, so I, I don't know. But what I know is 100% true is that you that no reaction is the same carried out in if you change almost any of the parameters of temperature, time, pressure, water, it, like all everything changes. You know what I mean? And so you can't <clears throat> even though the same style of reactions is taking place, you don't get the same flavors. And it's just a question of maybe they're not better or worse, maybe they're different. But you're thinking on something like garlic that you think it's worse to do the higher temperatures for shorter times. Yeah. In in the rare instances where our, our fermentation chamber has spiked up and jumped, I've always found that you do get these kind of like, this like burnt garlic flavor. And it may not be like overt. It may not be like, oh, this is like garlic that was stuck to the pan and it's gross. But you do get that a little like in the back of your mouth, that twang of it. Yeah, but I wonder it whether that's because you're running for... it so long. He's only running for like, uh, a, like in one, 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 he's running with a high temp on the crock pot. He's running, I think, a couple of days. And then I think in the pressure cooker, he's doing like 16 hours. I've never cooked garlic more than an hour and a half in a pressure cooker. So I don't know. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I know that shifting into pressure cooking range like drastically accelerates Maillard reactions. Drastically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Drastically. But, um, all right. But if, in other words... Yeah, but no, if, I haven't... Yeah, I haven't tried that yet. I'd love to do it. Love to do it someday. Someone I would love someone to do a side by side test and then bring the results to me, so I don't yeah. have to do the work. I'm too old to actually do the work <laughs> anymore. I want someone else to do the work and bring it to me. Um, all right, what other questions do I have? Oh, when you were making your uh, your shrimp, now shrimp. I'm assuming you chose shrimp for one of. I think right garm. You did a shrimp shrimp garm. I think one of the reasons you're doing that is because it already comes with its guts in it, right? So you appreciate you just buy the whole yeah. thing easy peasy, right? And it's got lots of guts yeah. with lots of enzymes in it. Now. And in yeah. fact, isn't that the reason you started koji doping uh, a lot of your stuff? Because you were using things that didn't have a lot of endogenous enzymes in it, yeah? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the grasshoppers do, um, but it, it, it really came about with, uh, with the meat scraps, um, with the beef can. And, you know, you're like, oh, well, what, what sort of digestive juices can we get from a cow? And, you know, yeah. Any butcher shop will be like, we're not selling you those. Because um, you're going to kill people. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. full of E. coli. Yeah. Um, so, so we switched to Kochi for that means, and then we're like, oh, wow, this flavor's developing really fast. And discovered that. The shrimp garam, though, is, uh, is very, it's classic. You know, it's just shrimp, lots of salt, just let it go at room temperature for, for months and months. So you say no uh, farm shrimp. Why? Why no farm shrimp? Is that just because you, you're hating on farm shrimp, or is there some actual technical reason the recipe won't work with farm shrimp? No, it won't, it won't not work. I just find the flavor to be lesser than the amazing wild shrimp that you can get. Uh, I mean, I, I know that we're a bit spoiled here in Copenhagen, but um, it, I, just, I just think wild shrimp tastes better, I mean, strictly one, from a taste perspective. Oh, okay, so it's just a tasting. You know, one of the things about... You know, if, 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 yeah. if a weekend warrior is going into a grocery store and they're getting, like, frozen tiger shrimp from Thailand, fed chicken shit or whatever, I don't think it's going to be the best taste thing on it. Well, it's because uh, farm it. shrimp are raised in, in uh, low, low salt situations. You know what I mean? Don't you think that's okay. why? Yeah. I mean, I think like, in, like from the research that I've done years and years ago, you know, one of the main issues with uh, farm-raised sh- farm shrimp is that they're raised in kind of, um, kind of concrete pits at lower salinity levels. And the free amino acids and kind of like nice tastiness of a shrimp 
is kind of directly one of the direct relationships it has is you know how much salt there was in in the environment mm. in which it was living same with like bass right so you get like your your hybrid stripers one of the reasons they don't taste very good is because they're raised in freshwater you know what i mean and mm. no offense to freshwater fishing people but i mean most of the stuff that what comes out of the ocean tastes better am i wrong about this no i, I would completely agree all right. really now a couple of things here. One, you uh, you you make a plea. You say you know you've moved away at Noma almost entirely from long cooked stocks, and you call it a greasy smear, like the old school gelatin array stocks. That's pretty harsh language. There, you guys don't like you. You don't, no longer even find a place for it. I mean, like it's <laughs> you know, honest. You know, Actually, no. Now with this game, with this game season menu, we do have we have a dish of uh, cold pheasant jelly right. with caviar, and that is a very, very classic stock. So it it, it did make a comeback, and there's no koji in it. Yeah, I, I will read the quote. Koji helps us to uh, find the finesse in our raw ingredients and highlight their natural beauty without smothering it, like adding a spray of just right lubricant. To a creaky door rather than a thick layer of grease. Hating on the gelatin based stocks. Just hating on them. They're heavy. They, they, for me, honestly, they take me back in time. And I'm not saying that Deft Hand can't use them well. But these, these are the things that I learned how to cook you know, 15 years ago. And they do, they, they do taste of a time and they taste of, of a certain way. And they do weigh you down. And, you know, Renee is the the final gatekeeper of what actually makes it onto the menu. And, you know, one thing he is, he is adamant about is that like the flavors don't weigh, weigh you down in your mouth. That nothing is like so incredibly heavy that you're like bogged down in the middle of your meal. Things should be light and slow and, 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 and like almost flutter on the palate. Um, and that's something Koji helps us do more than traditionally cook stocks. So that's, that's why that's part of the mantra in the book and how we apply it. All right. Well, so, we're coming up on the end here, and I was going to get in a long, protracted argument with you about chaos theory and hand taste and uh, consistency in the kitchen. So, for those of you that want, you know, that want to get into it, in the section on hand, so the the cover of the book is kind of, hey, Nastasia, we didn't get to say it. Nastasia hates the word spores. Spores, no, spores. You said it, and every time she you said it, I cringe. Yeah, she hates the word spore. But there's kind of like a, there's kind of like a fungal hyphae thing with a hand on the front cover right that's what's going on there yeah yeah and yes, it's, it is. yeah it's a discussion of kind of this idea that you know micro changes in the cook's hand hand taste taste of taste of cook taste of place right hand taste korean idea yeah. hand taste but then you go into chaos theory and this is where i have a bone to pick with you but i don't have the time to pick it because well you should just go no. to Copenhagen. the question well we'll do it again sometime <laughs> the bone to pick is is that with a hand, like having an actual hand taste, look, there is a true statement that batch to batch you're going to get changes because you're not controlling it 100% because things are wild. But part of having a taste from the hand is that the hand does lend some consistency through practice, right? I mean, that's the thing. Like, you, it is a trained hand, not like the random hand. You know what I mean? Not like the. Anyway, well, we, I wish we had more time to talk about it because instead I have to ask you this last question on the way out. And I know I didn't get into any of the pre-written oh, questions. It that is weren't a good fermented. question. It, well, we'll think about it. Maybe it you come a, back on sometime. Question. You know, when you're back in, uh, well, you know, in, in New York, sometime to, to see it. Oh, and I didn't get to ask you. By the way, real quick, coffee, coffee, 
and kombucha, coffee, shoyu, and kombucha. You make them with spent grounds. I get it as a way to reuse waste, but revelatory or just something to do to prove you can do it and, and not waste the coffee grounds? Uh, it, it can be extremely good. Now, th- that being said, we have tested so many different types of coffee, and they are all different. You will get fresh grounds where you'll have a batch that's shit, and fresh grounds where you'll have a batch that will you'll be like, holy crap, this is amazing. Um, and we were fortunate enough to have spent grounds actually turn out really, really good. But you can use fresh grounds. Um, trial and error will tell you what roasts are best, what beans are best. Um, but it's, it's, it's surprisingly good with this cold steep method. Man, man. So, and yes, it is a great way to, to give something a second life. So uh, you have been listening to David Zilber, uh, one of the co-authors of the Noma Guide to Fermentation out now. It's a great read. But before you leave... I have my last question, and I don't mean to blow up your spot, but if you look at your Instagram, which is David underscore Zilber, right? Is that correct? Yeah. And yeah. you look at your profile picture, and you're also wearing this in your Grub Street interview picture. You have this amazing yeah. Technicolor dream coat, and I don't want to like yeah. you know you to give any secrets away, <laughs> but where do I get this coat? This is a miraculous coat. It's like an amazing freaking coat. It is coat. a miraculous coat. Is, are, do you have it the is, only it one? It is a very... No, there's more than... I think they're sold out, to be honest, but it was made by a designer out of New York, uh, a label called Cease Marjan. Wait, they like... they make some fun stuff. Cease Marjan, like stop margining? No, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a Dutch name. Uh. But uh, S-I-E-S-M-A-R-J-A-N. Would you be Good offended designer. if I found one of these coats and also had one? No, of course not. I didn't make the coat. Anyone can buy the coat. Yeah, but it's like... I feel like it's like, you know... It's your coat, so like if I wore it, I'd be like, you know, kind of horning in on your coatness. Whatever. If you can find the coat, Dave, two Daves in the same jacket, that's not, that's not a bad thing. All right, cool. Well, anyway, thanks for coming on. Cat, uh, you want to say one you, more thing? Dave. It's been Thank a pleasure. Yeah, and next time you're in New York, stop by uh, the bar. Stop by Existing Edition. Say howdy. I have, one, I thing, I have I one thing to say before we go. I forgot to mention it. If you... If Cooking Issues listeners want to come to the gala, they can use the code Cooking Issues for 10% off their ticket. All right. Well, there you go. See you guys next week. Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.